On today's episode, we're talking with the Honorable Judge Gary Randall, and we're doing an in-chambers conversation behind the scenes about Judge Randall's life as a judge and as a lawyer. Welcome to the Lady Lawyer League podcast. They're a league of lady lawyers in an all-female law firm in Omaha, Nebraska called Hightower Ref Law. On this podcast, you'll hear stories of what it's like to be a lady lawyer and an entrepreneur. Now it's time to talk about the law, share real-life stories about representing clients, and discuss the current events of the week. It's the Lady Lawyer League podcast with Susan Ref and Tracy Hightower-Henny. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We are very excited to have a conversation with you and learn about everything that it was um, to be a judge and what you're doing now. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So um, we want to go way back. Uh, tell the Wayback Machine? The Wayback Machine. Um, yeah, that's a really cool website. So we want to go way back to <laughs> why did you want to be a lawyer in the first place? Because my father told me that I always argued with him and that I really knew how to defend myself well and that I had to go to law school. Oh, perfect. And I, he started that at about age eight. Oh, it was like your destiny. My destiny, I guess. Yeah. Do you have lawyers in your family? No. Well, I had my uncle. I'm sorry. My mother's brother was a was actually a quite famous lawyer in uh, Plattsmouth, Nebraska, Francis Casey. Okay. Uh, and he ran for Congress twice, never got elected, uh, but had a, a, a very successful law practice in Cass County. Great. So you had it in your blood. And are you from Omaha? I am. I am. I grew up in Sunset Hills. That's okay. <laughs> and you said Westside was your alma mater. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I was a warrior. I still am a warrior, I guess. Yes. And and your and your dad said you were a really good arguer. <laughs> and that's because I always argued with him. And he finally said, "You just won't let that go, will you?" I said, "No." <laughs> and he said, "Okay, that's the that's the field. Yeah. Law school is next." And did that translate well then for you as a lawyer? Was your dad right? <laughs> well, my father was right. I needed to go to law school. I think I think it was. Destiny is kind of like a woo-woo word to use for yeah. it, but I do think that um, it was a road that I was able to follow and a road I enjoyed a great deal. Yeah, and you were good at it. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's one of the things that we really wanted to talk about with you, too, is your career as a lawyer before you became a judge and how that sort of we think helped you be a good judge, um, having had experience in domestic cases, which is the primary focus of what we do at Hightower Ref Law. So tell us about your practice as a lawyer before you became a judge. It's, it's a little bit of an interesting story. Um, I went to work for a gentleman called Joseph Byrne, and Joe Byrne was a sole practitioner, uh, and he hired Tom Showmaker, uh, who is the world's greatest actor and lawyer, in my opinion. He and I are very good friends. Uh, and then he hired me. So we were the two ruffians that he had to teach how to practice law. Uh, and um, he was the most laid back, measured individual in the world. And Tom and I were exactly the opposite. And he needed us. So um, so he taught us how to be good lawyers and, you know, how to be ethical and how to make sure that you didn't um, build or didn't actually create any enemies in the practice, uh, which I think is a really important way to go forward yeah. as a lawyer. One of the things we talk about in our office all the time is reputation. 
and reputation in the legal community and then reputation with the bench too that we want our lawyers at our office to be able to go to the bench and go to a hearing and have the the judge say oh okay they're from that reputable firm and they're probably coming here pretty prepared um, and so we think that that's a really big big deal you know when we mentor young lawyers in our office and uh, we don't call them ruffians but I really like that <laughs> I uh, sometimes baby lawyers get to lawyer. be uh, demeaning but yeah. ruffian sounds great I, I think that's the exact right attitude to have because lawyers that don't go to a firm and practice with experienced attorneys can be spotted in a second. Because it's unfortunate. It's not it's not something that as individuals, even though we've graduated from law school and we may have done moot court, uh, we don't have any idea how to behave in court or how to put a case together uh, or or what the appropriate demeanor is. I never had. I never did moot court. You didn't. No, I I was down the tax law road in law school, and so I never intended to do any litigation. So it's, I had to learn it all at Creighton. Everyone has to do moot court. It's required. Yeah, no I didn't go to Creighton. Want. I know, but like <laughs> when you have to take trial practice too, correct? Yeah, yeah. I didn't do any of that. Yeah, there's like a track now. You can take the trial tract, but some oh. people. We, you had to take it one. Of course, that was the dark ages when I graduated in 1974. Um, you know what I did? I Our office used to be across the street from the courthouse. So I would go seek out cases and especially jury trials. I thought that was so cool. And I would just sit in the courtroom and watch. And I would do that as a as a ruffian. <laughs> I, I did that as well. Um, because Joe, my partner at the time, uh, said, you need to get trial experience. He said, I don't practice trial law. I started doing bond issues. That's what. I, that's how I started practicing law, because that's what he did. Uh, but I wanted the courtroom, and I wanted to represent individuals. I didn't necessarily want to represent a nursing home or a corporation or or someone that needed a bond issue, although the, the uh, compensation was excellent. Mm. Uh, I, I, the, uh, the, the learning how to bill hours and charge a client uh, was something I had to, to learn separately yeah. and learn how to survive on that because uh, our compensation rate, uh, and I did I mention that the other associate was Tom Showmaker? Yes. yes. You know, talk yes. about somebody with a big personality. Uh, and he would take me, he was a year or two older than I was, and he would take me along with him uh, on all of his hearings so that I could learn how to behave. And you said he was a good actor. He's an excellent actor. And that's part of being in court, is you have to tell a story. Absolutely. And you have to tell it in a way that catches someone's attention and um, is strategically you know, placed, right? Especially in domestic cases. Absolutely, and you have to be able to do it fast. Yes. I mean, you, you, you know how to do a temporary <laughs> hearing, and it's often in the judge's chambers. And you have to get your point across really quick or you're gonna lose the judge's attention because yeah. he's got 14, he or she has 14 other things they have to do. Yeah. And if it's at 11.30, they're about to go to lunch. That's true too. <laughs> yeah, And we are aware of that. <laughs> well, and I think sometimes it's learning what, what facts the judge wants to hear in that moment and what facts can be saved for later or just don't, the judge just doesn't need to hear. It's true and, and I think specific judges you may want to present specific facts to as well, yeah, because they've uh, they've highlighted them in a decision they've made when you've done it in front of them before, 
And if you sold it once, you can probably sell it again. Yeah. Yes. Well, and that's like the know your judge philosophy. Absolutely. You know, if you um, don't, if you don't do some background on the judge, and you are not experienced in appearing, yeah, uh, you're you're not doing your client a good service. So you enjoyed doing domestic cases, which is the sort of umbrella for divorce and custody and all of that. What did you enjoy the most about that? I liked all the personalities. Um, sorry for the um. I, uh, I really enjoyed the lawyers that did domestic work and I could understand it you know, from A to Z because it's what I did you know, before I was a judge. Um, it, what the learning curve wasn't as difficult, so I had a certain comfort level. And even when it came to custody cases, I knew if the lawyers presented the evidence appropriately, that I was doing something that was going to benefit these parties because I was never going to make a decision that intentionally drove them further apart. Uh, and in a trial, I honestly tried to explain to the lawyers, or not to the lawyers, the, the clients. Well, sometimes the lawyers need the explanation. That's, that's true, too. I apologize. <laughs> Where did you come I, with that decision? I tried to make sure the, the clients understood what my job really was. Yeah. And and where I was going to go with it. And we talk a lot about this that, you know, we try really hard to settle our cases in our office because we know judges either don't want to make the decision, wish they didn't have to make certain decisions, and that it's pretty serious if we're taking any part of a divorce or custody to the judge. And so I often try to put myself in your position and think, I don't want to make this decision either. But thank you for doing your job, you know? <laughs> well, it's, it's you know, it, it, it becomes second nature once you do it long enough, and I did it for 23 years. Yeah. And I actually practiced domestic law for 23 years before that. Wow. So I had, uh, I had a lot of background in the area, and I, and I could do it. But it still didn't make it particularly easy. Yeah, yeah. Were there, so one thing that we talk about a lot, too, is, like Susan just had a trial yesterday and when we have trials, maybe the next day we're always thinking, oh, I should have done that one thing differently. I should have, you know, done all these things and said things differently. Do you, did you feel that way as a judge? If you made a decision and the next day you think, oh, maybe I made the wrong decision. No, I did You didn't. made the decision and, and that was it. I did. Yeah. And, and the reason, I mean, generally I had a lot of information and evidence and, uh, and personalities that I was able to put together to, to fashion that decision. I didn't often call it from the bench unless it was a temporary hearing because I didn't think I was doing anybody any favors by that. Yeah. You get paid to put together the evidence and present it in court and I need to digest it to yeah. make the decision. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really helpful yeah. too. So. At what point in your career did you decide, maybe I want to be a judge, I want to put my name in? You want to know the truth? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Unless fiction On is the record. more exciting. <laughs> I was the chairman of the Democratic Party in Douglas County, Nebraska, and I worked um, with Kim Robach to get Ben Nelson elected. Uh, and Kim Robach came to me and said, you want to be a judge? And I said, let me think about it. And I went back to her two days later and I said yes. And I was one of the 
you know, we should probably look this up, but Ben Nelson appointed more judges in the state of Nebraska than I believe any governor ever has. Um, and I got appointed in his third year in office, I believe. Um, and, uh, and I've never regretted it. Had you, had you thought about it before that? You know, I mean, I think every lawyer at some point in their career, people say, well, you should be a judge, or do you ever think about being a judge? Do you want to be a judge? And Not seriously. I mean, I thought about the possibility, of, yeah. or I'd come out of a hearing and saying, I never would have done that. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> I could have done that better. <laughs> that's right. But no, I, uh, until, until she actually asked me if I wanted to do it, and I had to, I had to think about it for a yeah. couple of days before I said yes. Well, and, and Kim is an attorney and has experience, and obviously when someone who puts it out there for you, too, like, hey, I think you'd be really good at this, you know, well, that's where thinking about it, it becomes more re- more of a reality too. And she knew what she was talking about. Yeah. And I don't mean by picking me. I don't. No, I don't. No. I don't mean that. Uh, but I also talked to her husband Bill about mm-hmm. it, Bill Miller, and uh, it was it took a it took a couple days, you yeah. know, for me to think about that. Um, but I I was honored. Yeah. You know, and I said, well, if I if you think I have a reasonable chance, I am not opposed to putting my name in. Yeah, uh, and I only applied once. I think you told me too when you applied there was a lot of applicants. I think there were at least nine. Yeah, what was that process like for you? Scary, because I will always go back to myself and say I did something wrong or I didn't do it well enough. Sure, you know, even though I'm trying to do it thoroughly, um, but it 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 really was. Um, it wasn't too frightening because I knew Kim quite well. I knew her husband quite well, and I knew the governor quite well because I had been for the chairman of the Democratic yeah. Party, and I worked for him. Yeah, uh, and uh, and so that process wasn't <clears throat> frightening. It just was whether I'd get it or not get it. Yeah, you know, and I didn't know that I would. People don't like to apply for things and not get them. Correct. Right, and the part of the process for the listeners that don't know is having an interview with the governor. Yes, ma'am. And that, I can imagine, is frightening if you don't know the governor. And I did, so I yeah. wasn't terribly frightened by it. Uh, but it's kind of interesting, and I don't know if anybody's ever told you about it, and I think that governors still do it this way. They have a long conference table, similar to the one we're sitting at now. You sit on the end, or not the, the I'm sorry, the governor sits on the end, you sit on the angle facing the governor, and the governor's staff member who's done all the research on what you, you know, what you've done in your life and who you are is sitting at the other end going, Yeah, that ask him that one. Yeah. yeah oh, like just feeding boy. the governor questions. <laughs> I mean not not specifically audibly, yeah. But you know, identifying whether they appropriately, you know, uh, were getting the questions that they wanted across and whether they were getting the information out of the interview that they needed. And it's probably in one of the dark kind of darker rooms in the legislature Formal. in the Capitol building. Yeah. No, it's actually in the governor's office, but, oh, the, okay. but the governor has several rooms to his office. And, and it's actually a dark library type room yes. where the interview took place. Yeah. Uh, but it was, it, was, it was okay because I knew him. So for That the, helped a lot. For the lawyers who do think being a judge could be really interesting or a path that they want to take, what are some of the myths that maybe people think about being a judge that just aren't true? Or what are the things that 
you thought differently before you became a judge? I didn't know how busy I would always be. But I was glad. Uh, I, I had a lot of respect for judges, you know, having practiced trial law for, you know, 23 years before I became a judge. Uh, and I, I really liked the courtroom. Uh, and, the, and I liked other lawyers. So if you're a judge who likes other lawyers, it makes it a little easier. <laughs> if you don't like other lawyers, yeah, I can see how that would be difficult. Well, there are some judges that just don't like people. Yeah, you know, and, yeah. and they also are not crazy about other lawyers. I mean, they'll say something like, "Oh, well, he's a lawyer." Well, yeah, of course they are. That's what, <laughs> that's what they do, that's and a, that's why we need them. Yeah, it, so, it sounds like that judge was surprised when they said that. Like, "Oh, that person's a lawyer." <laughs> Well, of course they're a lawyer. They're in court. He was, he or she, I'm not going to say which, <laughs> probably was merely expressing an acknowledgement of why a, a, a person behaved in, a, in a, that particular way in their courtroom. <laughs> when you became a judge, did you feel that your relationship with other lawyers changed? Because most lawyers, and I'm gathering this from what you've been telling us, you're pretty collegial. You had good friends who were lawyers. Obviously, you were, you know, socializing professionally and personally with other lawyers, and then you become a judge. I never took myself too seriously. I don't think, unless I was challenged, you know. And and if a lawyer was challenging my authority, um, you know, then I could probably get a. You know, get a little stiffened up a little bit, and uh, you know, and, and yeah. you know, possibly, uh, possibly wasn't as friendly as I normally am. But I don't think that I ever treated lawyers badly. I I just didn't. You know, even if I ruled against them, uh, that that was my job. Yeah. You know, and I didn't do it because of their personalities. You know, right. I did it because I believed that was the law. Yeah. So did were you able to maintain friendships with the lawyers after you got on the bench? I was. Do you do you think that's always the case? Or do you think I think some difficult? judges are less comfortable with that than others. Um, but I'm I hate to say this, but I try to be friendly to everybody, you know, and I and I think we all need to have our have our say in what happens in the judicial system. Um, you know, I, I, I might make the ultimate decision, or actually the Supreme Court does, but uh, <laughs> you, I, I you, might make... You've guided them there, though. <laughs> <laughs> you tell Ch Chief Justice Hevick you just said that, okay? I'll, I'll call him. All right. Um, I'll text him. <laughs> actually, he might agree. But, uh, you know, I, I felt that it, it's a process that we all come to the table on. I have to make the ultimate decision, but I, I, I get my information from you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's how I make that decision. Yeah. And when we have to come to a table with difficult topics and things to talk about, people can do it friendly and respectfully. and Not always, but yes. <laughs> they can, but yeah. they don't always do it. They yes. don't. Yes. They don't. And it's, it's unfortunate because uh, they, they should. Um, I think as a practitioner, I don't think I ever made any permanent enemies. 
other than people that that were going to live around the landfill that I got zoning <laughs> got put in you know, the zoning corrected on just so that they could yeah, do that. Yeah, tell us about that part of your career because I think that's fascinating. I represented uh, the. I think I can say their name. I don't think they'd care. The Hubanks family, which owned a, a group of landfills, uh, and they were quite successful at it. And they were—they weren't garbage landfills. It wasn't what the city picks up from your house. They were demolition debris uh, properties. So if they were building a a structure and they had leftover broken brick and concrete and those types of things. They actually found pieces of property in you know Douglas County or close to Douglas County that needed to be filled so the property could be uh, brought up to its highest and best use, mm-hmm. which is what I did in zoning anyway. Yeah. So it was really it was really kind of a full circle uh, situation, and you know in general, just because it was a landfill, it was going to be opposed. Yeah. But you know landfills have hours. And landfills have people at the gates saying, you can come in and do this or you can't. You know, they regulate. And it's just like any other business that you're operating, you know, that you happen to live next door to. And talk about having to come to a table with people who don't agree with you when you're representing someone who wants to operate a landfill. Yes, it's difficult. And uh, you need, if you are going to properly represent your client, you have to bring those people who are not in agreement with you to the table and at least get it all out there. There aren't any secrets. You're not gonna pull any tricks on those folks. It's all above board because I couldn't practice law if I wasn't, I'd lose my license. Uh, And I wanted to make sure those people who were gonna be most affected would clearly understand what what the options were here. Um, And I acknowledged their option to resist it. You know, and they could go in and, and do that as well. And I did not, in any way, act offended or you know, do, you know, feel that they did anything inappropriate because that's their right to represent their property. Yeah. Well, and ultimately, if you can paint the landfill in a way that makes them comfortable, they're going to agree. Right. You know. And often they did. Yeah. You know, it's it's, uh, but still. They're going to put a landfill next to my house, you know. <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's a my very emotional issue. My property values will go down. It's a, it's yeah. an emotional issue, and and people have to understand it completely before they can say, okay, I can live with this. Yeah, and family law is emotional too. It's just like a totally different kind of thing. <laughs> Isn't that odd that I had those two areas <laughs> yes, of expertise? Yeah, I, yeah. Expertise is the wrong word. Those two areas of practice that I focused on. Con- convincing neighbors and landowners that a landfill can be also be a good neighbor and convincing a judge or opposing counsel that your position is the right position. That's right. <laughs> yeah. In a divorce. Yeah. But you know, if you're prepared for either task, yeah. <clears throat> um, whether you're appearing in front of a zoning board of appeals or the city council or you know the county board, or if you are appearing in front of a judge, it's the same thing. It's It's the same thing, you're just doing it with different information yeah. for a different ultimate goal. Yeah. One of my legal mentors, Tom Riley, always said, "Don't lose because you weren't prepared." You know, if if you were prepared and you lost, what, you know, you were never going to win anyway. It did, it doesn't matter what 
Or maybe you should have and you just appeal and then <laughs> then you win then. <laughs> but like that's the worst regret, right? Is going after the fact and saying, well, man, I should have done that. Uh, you know, I could have taken that deposition and I decided not to. Be prepared, be overly prepared so that you're putting the best case forward and you don't have those regrets afterwards. It's true for the judge too. I mean, a judge walking into a three-day trial that hasn't looked at what's going to be offered for purposes of evidence, um, really, I mean, not taking it as, as, as they, they can't weigh it there. They, right. just, they just, they need to know what's going to be presented. Yeah, what's coming so at So that me. they understand it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, and generally they'll know anyway because it's, you've had multiple hearings before you yeah. got to trial. But you know, I, I think you have to be prepared as a judge to walk in that courtroom, because if all of a sudden you start talking about something that I have, a topic that I have no knowledge whatsoever on, uh, and I don't mean how you weigh the evidence, I don't mean that. I mean, I need to, to understand where you're gonna go yeah. so that I can follow it. Some of the facts. I feel, you, I feel like in my experience, I can tell in, in domestic cases when a judge really hasn't looked at anything because they start their body language changes they start like leaning in and you know we've given the judge ahead of time all the evidence that we're going to present most of our judges ask for a proposed decree, decree. or a letter saying here's what we would like to have you mm -hmm. decide and both sides are doing this so the judge can kind of anticipate what's going to happen and you can tell the judge that just cracked it open that morning um, versus the judge that, you know, walked in and is like, okay, I'm really, I'm really focused on this one or two, these one or two issues. The rest of it, I think, we can kind of gloss over. And I mean, that's, the, that's that. the judge telling you, listen, I want you to focus on that issue yeah. in trial, and I don't need to hear a whole bunch about. Right? There's a lot of direction to yes. the lawyers too. And, and as an attorney, well, we know how to value property if you've given us the right evidence to use for yeah. purposes of valuation. Yeah. That's pretty easy. You know, and then there are solutions to some of those problems that we can employ as well. And sometime we'll talk to you about it. Sometimes we'll talk to you about it before the trial starts, yeah. which is if you really can't divide this personal property up, <laughs> give me a list. And your client gets the first one, and your client gets the second one, and we'll go down the list. And when we talk about personal property, we're talking about the couches and the TVs. That's right. Yeah. And maybe the toaster. Exactly. I, yes. Yeah. And and none of it can really be worth fighting over at the rates that lawyers build. No, no never. No. And you know, I think that you have reiterated something that we tell our clients all of the time: financials. It's just a dollar amount. It just gets split. Very rarely are we off 50-50. You know, sometimes there's cases where we need to go off 50-50, but for the most part, the average divorce without a business or something like that, it's going to be 50-50. And you know, for people to expect it, you know, like, well, they shouldn't get any of, I, I get that all the time. They shouldn't get any of the house. <laughs> they shouldn't get that. That's in my name alone, and it's like, Oh, I mean, how many times can you tell them? Yeah. Well, and that's often for an estate planning purpose or a liability protection purpose, not to say that it's not marital property. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of those trials that you had, you know, your three-day trials and those um, types of cases as a judge, what are the cases that stick out to you the most? You mean domestic cases? Sure. Good or bad. 
Yeah, or the li- the little things that you just, you know, those are the stories that you tell at parties of, I can't believe this one case, that one time. <laughs> I remember, is there is it Judge Coffee did something with the espresso machine? I had that heard story. that. I don't know if that was true. <laughs> oh, I've, I've done that, and I, I've got similar types of things, which yeah. is basically, you know, if you're, if you're, we'll sell it and we divide the money, you know, yeah. or, or something of that nature. If the parties are being horribly unreasonable with each other and, and have unrealistic expectations, they're going to get an unrealistic result. Yes. Uh, and, you know, some of that's the lawyer's problem in not bringing them to in, t- in touch with reality. Uh, some of it is just a party not wanting to be involved in that process. They want it because they think it's theirs and they don't want the court to have anything to do with it. They just want the other party just to give it to them. Mm-hmm. We, we call that lack of client control. And so <laughs> oftentimes we'll have opposing counsel, um, you know, we just don't think is really giving any advice to the opposing party because they're being so unrealistic and we'll say they need to get control of their client. Yeah. And yeah. really explain to them, you know, this isn't how this works. Or when you go into court, the judge isn't going to do that. No way, no how. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that that's absolutely correct. And and you recognize it when you're sitting on the bench. You're kind of going, really? <laughs> really? <laughs> Did you have those conversations in your head when you're sitting there in those divorce trials? And I probably I had it in my head, and then I subsequently had it with the lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it would come out of your head. Yes. Yeah. So when you're hearing a trial um, and you've you've looked at the evidence and you're sitting there on the bench and the case is being presented to you, are you taking notes like so that you because you said I like to think about my decision, I go back and go through all the evidence. I mean, are you writing down kind of word for word? Are you hitting the big points? What are you doing to help yourself remember everything? All of that with regard to different pieces of evidence depends yeah. on what it is. Um, I I liked actually to take notes on the copies, my copies of the exhibits. Oh, yeah. You know, once they were admitted. Uh, because I could then relate directly to, uh, this is what Tracy said it was was worth, and this is what Susan said it was worth. Yeah. You know, and I make little notes to myself about that. And then, because sometimes, I mean, if you, I, I have had stacks of exhibits that were two feet tall yeah. in a divorce case. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, bankers might, boxes. Exactly. You know, and and now all of that is on my back bar. You know, waiting for me to sift through it all and make a decision. And I, you can't see it in the podcast, but I am holding yeah. my hand three feet above the table yeah. Uh, yeah. to identify how tall the stacks are. Yeah. The worst thing that can happen though is when you get a case like that, you get afraid of it. And I didn't have too many of those, but if you get afraid of it and you let it sit there for an extensive period of time, your knowledge does not get any better. Yeah. Yeah. So your so your notes hopefully then are the thing that help. They would. They mm-hmm. would be. And of course, you know, I my court reporter and I had a fabulous relationship and she would just go back and say, No, Judge, this is what he said, yeah. uh-huh. you know, because I'll specifically ask her, yeah. you know, because it's okay for me to go over that record. Yeah. I, I could have her type it up and reread it. And yeah. That'd yeah. be okay. Uh, I don't think the county board would want me to <laughs> do that on, do every, that case. on every case. Right. Yeah. Why, why do you think some judges do take so long to answer? I mean, you never did. I felt like, I, I feel like there's judges are in two camps. We're going to get a decision pretty quick, you know, a week to 10 days on, you know, a, a one day, a half day divorce trial. 
But some of these other judges, I mean, it's like a couple months. Are they backlogged? Four more. Yeah, I mean, what are they doing? Are they bad at managing time, or what is it? I would never say that. Okay. <laughs> um, although it may be true. Uh, no, it's it's uh, it just depends on how busy their schedule is. You know, if they are, you know, if they're doing one trial right after another without any kind of breaks, you know, to be able to make decisions, mm-hmm. um, it gets it it is difficult, and you can't necessarily get to it. The problem with not getting to it is you don't remember it any better right. three months later than you did three days later. Right. Uh, you know, so if you actually have the opportunity to get it resolved, um, that's when you need to do it as a judge. I can remember, though, you know, at the beginning of my judicial career, there were some cases I was just frightened by. Sure. You know, and I can't tell you why I was frightened. I can't even tell you specifically which ones they were. I just knew that there were some that I didn't feel I knew well, and I was a little scared about what I might do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and but the answer to the problem or the issue was to educate myself. Yeah. Well, we're going to continue this conversation in our next episode with Judge Randall, where he's going to talk about his legacy cases, including the Anthony Garcia case. And he's going to give us uh, some advice for the ruffian or baby lawyers and potential clients. So make sure to listen to our second episode with Judge Randall. Thank you for listening to the Lady Lawyer League podcast. And be sure to like and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. If you would like to learn more about our firm, Hightower Ref Law, please visit our website at hrlawomaha.com. We'll see you next week.